morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of the Keep It Renal podcast. Got a really big treat for you today, actually. We've got Jack Goodland, who is a kidney patient and a double transplant recipient. He's here to talk about his experiences, and particularly around being a young adult with kidney disease and the transition from paediatric through to adult care. And to sort of help us along the way there, we've got Alex Hamilton, who is a clinical lecturer in renal medicine at the University of Bristol uh, and is also one of Jack's um, doctors. Uh, And we've got Ali Jenkins, who is a renal young adult support worker. Um, And along with Caroline, who is a paediatric nephrologist, um, we're going to basically talk around the issues that can be particularly important to young adults as they transition from being under paediatric onto adult care Um, and we're just going to hear a lot about what Jack's experiences were, what the particular problems were Um, I'm sure like me you'll find him to be a particularly inspiring uh, fella. Um, Like so many of the patients we talk to completely underestimate just how inspiring they are to the rest of us, how they seem to take um, these quite difficult situations in their stride. Okay, so without too much more from me, why don't we hear from Jack about his experiences and from Alex and Ali about the systems around to support young adults as they make this transition. See you on the other side. Hi, my name's Alex. I'm a, um, I'm a clinical expert in renal medicine at the University of Bristol and I do clinical work at the Royal Devon Exeter Hospital. Hi, my name's Jack Goodland. I am the double kidney transplant, first one back in September 99 and the second one in 2019. Uh, my name is Ali Jenkins. I work as a renal young adult support worker at uh, North Bristol NHS Trust. Cool. So if we could start with you, Jack, if you could just talk us through um, how things started with you, what were the sort of first things you noticed and and sort of how your condition and, and treatment developed from there on in until now? So the first transplant, I don't really remember much about because I was only just two years old. So ah, okay. Well, yeah, that'll, that'll be why. <laughs> I was put on the transplant list when I was six months old. I had dialysis up to about two years old and had a, my first transplant when I was two. That lasted about 18, 19 years, which is brilliant because they say on average about 10 to 15 really good achievement on that one I was very lucky actually I got put on the main list the national list and I was also put in the head pool exchange with my stepdad who was willing to donate to myself but he wasn't unfortunately a match due to different blood types and that sort of thing and um but he was willing to donate to somebody else don't know who it's gone to whoever um, so he donated someone for me to receive one and this happened back in 2019 the start of the year actually I was meant to have it back in March of 2019. Unfortunately, it got cancelled due to a skin condition that I was suffering from. The surgeon wasn't willing to operate, which was very heartbreaking because I was very looking forward to having a transplant. I thought, here we go, my life's going to change. Let's let's, let's go and have a second life. And yes, it was a bit of a blow not being able to have that. Um, So they all sort of all fell through in the March time. And then we went through the pair exchange again in June, July. Luckily to match again in the pair exchange. And I had the second transplant uh, July the 16th, which was actually two days after my birthday, which is probably the biggest, biggest um, birthday present I could ask for. It really was 
Um, and I'm very uh, happy, actually. I feel actually amazing from it. Um, I can't put into words how amazing I feel. And I'm very lucky I've actually met the donor that donated to myself. How was that? Oh, I never met the guy in my life. So actually, it was quite weird. So I sent a letter to him in about October, November time when I felt ready, I felt fit, ready to send a letter. Send a letter to him and a couple of couple of months after he replied back and what his name was, what he did, why he donated. And um, yeah, we got chatting um, through Facebook actually. I added him on Facebook, got messaging and then we arranged to meet up. Actually, he got the train down to where I live down in the Oval. And um, yeah, and Consider I never met the guy in my life. I just, he came off the train. I ran up and gave him the biggest hug. I turned around, my mum and stepdad are in absolute floods of tears. <laughs> amazing, amazing story, really is. That is amazing. That's yeah. lovely. I just cannot tell you how amazing I feel from having it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I texted my mum the day after I had it and I said, I feel alive. She goes, what are you on about? You're chatting nonsense. I was like, I feel alive. Like, everything's just like a clear picture, like... My sight's changed a bit before, before having a transplant. I feel like there were blurs, almost like a cloud over my head. And um, as soon as I woke up from my transplant, I just thought, whoa, I'm in a new world, you know? Wow. That's incredible. I, I feel amazing, honestly. I can't thank my donor enough. I, thank, I can't thank the guys here at um, Southwood Hospital for the care that they provided for me as well. It's brilliant. Jack, can I ask you a question? Of course. How long had you been feeling um, not quite right for in the run-up to needing your second transplant? Um, so I didn't feel... It started to all go downhill when I got to about 16, 17, going through puberty. It was very difficult. Um, anxiety, depression all kicked in really badly. And like I said, I can't fault the guys up here. They got me through it. Just amazing, really. Do you mean? I, I seem to remember you having a GFR that was quite low for a long time, but not low enough to warrant being set up for the surgery I, I seem to remember the GFR of around 17 for quite a long time which must have been hard as well yeah the GFR did actually got to about 15 and I felt rough I didn't actually realize how poorly I was mm. until after having it done um my mum was like oh you won't, you won't know yourself you won't recognize I didn't believe it oh no I feel the same I'll be fine and then I turned around the next morning she came in the next morning and said mum you're right you feel amazing what was the main thing you noticed? Was it your energy levels or not feeling nauseous? Or was there any particular thing that you remember thinking, wow, I just, I'm so much better than I was? Uh, I was feeling less tired. I felt like I had more energy. My sight actually changed for me. It was quite a big one. Like I said a bit before, it was a bit of a blur, a bit of a cloud over me. And as soon as I woke up, the anesthetic and the transplant, it was just boom, like bright lights, everything was colour. And a lot of people didn't believe me when I said that, but I believe. I know someone that had the same thing, and it is, I think it's generally the same thing that happens. So sort of what we wanted this episode and, and, and interview to be about was the, the sort of particular problems a young adult might face as a kidney patient and sort of um, any particular problems that you felt you had and then maybe uh, bringing the others about um, what systems are available to, to help this particular uh, group of kidney patients. So what was it about being that, you know, you talked about going through puberty and being sort of 16, 17. What do you think were the sort of particular problems you've had as, as a young adult, uh, as a kidney patient? My kidney, like, deteriorated. My moods, like my anxiety, my depression all kicked in. I'm very lucky that I had transplant friends around me 
due to something called the transplant games actually I don't know if anyone's heard of that mm. um, I started going to that when I was just four years old wow. through the the children's hospital of in Bristol um, I started going to I was four I'm still going now unfortunately had to cancel because of my transplant two years ago and obviously last year because of COVID but um, yeah I'm going since I'm four um, and it's basically like the it's basically like the Olympics. Everyone that's competed has had some form of transplant, whether it's kidney, liver, heart, lung, double lung, whatever it is. Um, everyone does their own sort of sport. So my my sport is sort of table tennis is a big one for me, and badminton and lawn bowls, which is a big sport for me. Um, and if you are good enough and you achieve at the British Transplant Games, you are they have like scouts around and you get spotted. You have the privilege to maybe go to the World Transplant Games where you actually represent your country in the uh, World Transplant Games, yeah. And um, that is just an amazing event. I mean, you're meeting people from all over the world. I've met so many friends through it worldwide. And um, you just meet some amazing people, honestly, from like age five up to 95, you know. It's just incredible, it really is. I actually got to go to two World Transplant Games, so I went... Sweden in 2011 and I went to South Africa in 2013 and I was very proud that I actually achieved a few medals there through the sports that I, that I competed. Wow good for you. Yes yeah, turned around to all your friends and said I've just competed for Great Britain and they're just like whoa that's a big achievement you know and it is huge. It yeah is. it's a big achievement. So would you say that your peers that you met through doing things like the transplant games and other young renal patients that you met through that sort of thing helped you to help to support you? Oh yeah, most definitely. Most definitely, yeah. I mean, I've got transplant friends that are older than me that have gone through having another transplant. And going back to my second transplant, I was almost turned around and said, I'm not having it done. I was so nervous, so anxious. Mm. And I almost look back now, coming up two years, I look back and I think, what was I worried about? You know, I mean, I understand it's a big, big operation, really is. But um, you just got to sort of get to know the nurses, the doctors, especially Alex, he's been brilliant. Um, just all around, just, you know, you've got to trust them. It's their job. They do it day in, day out. And it's just, yeah, amazing. Jack, what, what, what were the specific worries that you had? Or, or was it more sort of generalised? I, my worry personally was actually the anaesthetic part of it. I have a big phobia of getting put to sleep. I hate it. And it's always that thing. It's about the waking up after. I'm always a bit worried that I'm going to get put to sleep and then I'm not waking up after. That's a big fear of mine. And I, I, going back to children's, I think it's always gone from children's. I think children probably feel the same. They absolutely hate getting put to sleep and thinking, I'm not going to wake up after this, you know. As soon as you do wake up from that transplant, you just think, Wow, you know, I've been given a second chance at life and not many people can say that, you know, it's amazing, really. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's um, an uncommon um, phobia about uh, going under anaesthetic. I think it's very, I hear a lot of people saying the same thing. So, um, but good to know that you woke up thinking the experience hadn't been half as bad as you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Well, that's quite lucky because I had such a big phobia of getting put to sleep. Yeah. And anaesthetic side of things. I was very lucky that I got to actually meet the anaesthetist, uh, the anaesthetist that previously. 
they actually gave me a tour of the theatre. It's a lot different from children's to adults in the way that in children's they put you into like a they call like a medi room type thing where they put you in and you get put to sleep and then go into theatre. With adults, it's a lot different because you get put to sleep in the theatre. And for me, going into a theatre, all these machines, lights, it was just like, whoa, what am I going into here? I just it was scary. So I'm very lucky that I got to have a visit around the theatre. Got to see what the many rooms, the, the, the room you go into before you go down to the theatre. And they sort of talk you through the whole process of how they, in stages of how they do it. I do recommend if any of the young adults coming through are looking to have a transplant in this hospital, definitely look into doing that because that was, that changed my views on everything. And it yeah. made me feel a lot more calmer, more chilled to actually, actually meet the anaesthetist that put me to sleep and to meet, to meet the surgeon as well. I mean, yeah. the surgeon is the biggest part of the operation, you know, he's been on doing all the main, the main bits. So meeting him and getting sort of building a relationship with him was a big, a big part for me as well. Which is why I got through it, you know, I was very, like I said, I almost turned around and said, no, I'm not having it done, I can't do it. But going through the, the visiting of the anaesthetist and the, the anaesthetic room, well, the, the room you're going before, and the, the theatre, yeah, big part really changed my views. Really. So was your recovery pretty uneventful, um, Jack, or did you have any problems in the weeks after transplant? Um, so after weeks after transplant, the main sort of thing I felt was still sort of aches and pains. Yeah. Kidney was put in. And obviously the amount of medication that they give you to start with is quite overwhelming at first. It's quite a lot. But over the weeks and months ahead, it does sort of decrease on how many you have. So it's down to like a maintenance. So as soon as I had the transplant, they go, right, here's your, here's your list of meds. I just think that's a lot, you know, I'll be rattling. You'd have been through it all before when you were a kid, but you didn't remember any of that, of course. So back in November 1999, I had my first one. Don't remember anything, which is why I was so nervous and so anxious about having a second one because I obviously didn't have a clue what happened in my first one. You know, being two years old, you're just thinking, <laughs> you know, but yeah, got the second one. I've been through a lot, but I've achieved so much as well. So, well, totally, yeah. Um, so I just wondered then, um, Alex and Alison, I, I know there's sort of no such thing as a, as a typical patient, but do you have an idea amongst you what the sort of most common problems and issues are faced by teenagers and young adults as, as they sort of grow up through the system? One thing to pick up on what you said, Carl, there's no standard patient that comes through. There's a huge variety and, you know, Jack's got a very long history from infancy, um, and sometimes we get young adults who, who present straight um, into adult services without going through the transition process. We sometimes get people with developmental problems or you know, learning difficulties. So there's a huge sort of spectrum to, to try and encapsulate. So there isn't ever a one size fits all solution. Um, and you know, when we meet people early, then it gives us a chance to make plans and provisions for the specific needs that, that you see coming through. And in Jack's case, um, having the chance to have a tour of the hospital and see the see the parts of the hospital that were unfamiliar and frightening, um, and you know were going to be needed, um, was was very helpful because often it's all in an outpatient setting, and then if you if you need to come to the ward, it's all different, and it, and you you know you might not be prepared for that. 
Yeah, I completely concur with that as well. I think it's really important that we, if we, if it's possible that we meet the young adults kind of on their turf before they actually have to come under adult services, it's really important that they realise that they're going to have continuity of care as well. It's really important to get the parents on board as well, because a lot of these young people, like Jack, have gone through from literally being babies, and they find it really, really difficult to hand over and get to trust a whole new team of doctors. It's really important that we kind of, you know, make a connection with parents as well. And, and although they're 18 and it's up to them to consent to things and take responsibility, but we're not just saying, okay, that's it, parents are excluded. You know, we have to look at it as a whole and treat everybody very much individually. Uh, the most important thing I think really is that we have to empower these young people. So by doing things like starting the Ready, Steady, Go paperwork, finding out what they understand, what their needs are, and working on that as they progress through from sort of 13 all the way through till they come over to us at 18. And we can find out if they've got any gaps, what they need support with, because the thing that we would hate is that they would come over to adult services and then completely disengage. We need to make sure it's really important we build up a good rapport with them as, as quickly as we can and that they know that they've got, you know, thorough people that are going to look after them as well afterwards and, and have confidence in us as much as they have confidence in the pediatric. Would you be able to talk us through that Ready, Steady, Go paperwork a little bit, please? Yeah, so basically, uh, the team at the Bristol Children's will do the first sort of lot of the paperwork. So what they'd like us to do is um, start approaching the young person around about 12, 13 in the first instance and get an understanding of, of kind of like what they understand about their kidney condition, if they understand anything to start with. Um, and then they kind of get an understanding of, of what their needs are. Then they do the second order paperwork around about 16. Some people at 16 are ready to come over to adult services. So it might be that actually we kind of then plan with the pediatricians to say, actually, this young person has almost more or less outgrown the pediatric services and would benefit from coming over to adults a bit early. And then there's going to be others at 16 that are really, really struggling that you know are not going to be ready to transition until they're 18, or there might be more multidisciplinary people that you know, put, need to put things in place. So ready, steady, and go which is done around about 18, are all basically done under the paediatric team. Um, and then that is handed over to us in the transition clinic with the green paperwork being the go paperwork. And we complete hello to adult services when the young person first comes to the first young adult clinic appointment. But then I quite often sit down with them and say, okay, I know when you filled in this paperwork before you thought you were happy with this, are there any gaps you can identify? I can then hand it over to the adult nephrologist they can already see that, you know, we're considering where there might be some gaps, where there are things that we need to give extra support with, whether that be, for example, that the young person's never had to, had to order their own medications before or um, make their own clinic appointments before, that sort of thing. So we try to work out what help they need. And it's really thorough. The team at Bristol Children's will do a lot of the, the legwork beforehand and then give us a good handover and then we know if there's things that we might need to pick. That sounds quite um, comprehensive, actually. I, I just wondered if you could um, elaborate on that from your point of view, Caroline. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we try, as Ali just said, to get children involved in the idea that eventually they won't be 
under paediatric care from a really early stage. And we have one of our specialist nurses who has a sort of lead role in managing patients through that pathway um, with the Ready, Steady, Go paperwork um, as a, a, an addition to that. Um, and it's a program that's used nationally. Um, it was developed by the team in Southampton and it's, um, it's, been, it's been really helpful for clinicians and patients really to guide them through those steps in a systematic way. Um, and for people who transition is a bit new for, to introduce those concepts um, from, from professional and patient angle really. So we find it very helpful and it reminds us of the things that are important to ask the, the young person in clinic um, and equally as the, as the years go on and they're closer to transition that process ramps up a little bit and, and again as Ali said a lot of it's about uh, independence for the young young um, young adult really um, and um, making sure that they understand that in adult care they they're the independence is key really they, they they need to find a way through the system without knowing that they'll have that backup of the pediatrician calling them to make sure they're coming to their appointment so it's just a little bit more hands-off in the adult setting and you have to be prepared for that there's suddenly going to be a lot more patients fighting for a lot less space in clinic and, and time really i think um empowering the young person to take charge of their health is is really is really key we try and incorporate the transition work in, into appointments from very early on just introduce the ideas quite casually um, uh, and build up on those uh, over the teenage years i think it's really important to add that um, in bristol you're transitioning to multiple different adult providers um, who will do things slightly differently so again there's there's never the one size fits all approach but ready steady go is a structured framework to um, evaluate the knowledge, skills and confidence of, of patients. So it, when people come to adults and we, we see the hello, um, welcome to adult services side of it, you can quickly look through and, and see, you know, what does this person need help and support with? How can I, how can I empower them um, with their um, self-management? And it, it leads straight into shared decision-making, which is really important for this age group. You asked earlier, Carl, about the most common problems that affect young people. And I think probably a lot of it does relate to the fact that although you've completed your physical growth, usually by the age of 18, your brain development continues into your mid-20s. And it's a lot of fine-tuning, complex processes which help you make complex decisions and balance risk and reward and, and control your impulses and things like that. So you know, we, we often ask young people to make big, important decisions and we need to think about the best way to support them to do so. It's really useful with the Ready, Steady, Go paperwork that um, the young person's education status is also considered. It's mm. quite important, as you can imagine, 17, 18 year olds coming over to us are potentially moving on to different places like colleges and universities as well. So if we're trying to make sure that we're encouraging them to be independent and empowering them, we also might be needing to make sure they've got a point of contact when they move away potentially for the first time from home. So we need to bear that in mind as well. Um, and as Alex has just mentioned, sometimes they're not quite as mature as um, other young adults that haven't had a, a chronic illness. So sometimes they do a bit of their risk taking a bit later. So we might need to be a bit more aware of you know, making sure they're making good choices I can't imagine having to add um, managing a condition on top of when you, you know, I think of what I was like when I moved away to university. I 
barely look after myself in terms of making beans on toast, let alone managing appointments and stuff on top of that. So, yeah, it's tricky. Um, Jack, I just wondered, did you have a sort of paediatric team that you knew quite well um, and felt settled with? And, 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 what, and if you did, what's that like sort of leaving them, as it were, and meeting a whole new bunch of people? I suppose you were lucky in, in meeting Alex and uh, Alison. But, um, uh, you know, meeting anyone new, no matter how nice they are, you, you don't know they're nice before you meet them, do you? So how did you sort of find that meeting, meeting a whole set of new faces? I had a strong relationship with my pediatric team in Bristol. They were absolutely brilliant. Um, they probably wouldn't recognise me now because I've changed with a child. But um, going from pediatrics to adults is a big, big change. There's a lot more responsibility, a lot more independence involved. And all these things you sort of learn as you're going to your appointment. So Alison helped me through my form of medication, the big one. The big one for me was actually driving up to Bristol itself, because I don't live around the area. I live quite far down in Yeovil. And um, I said to my mum, when I turned 18, 19, I said, I'm never going to be driving to my appointments, never going to do it. Because it's such a big city, you know, you sort of panic a little bit. But now I can't put my own fly through it. And it's just, yeah, it's brilliant. Um, yeah, no, I do miss the, the paediatric team. They were brilliant. But they're just as brilliant in adults as they are in children, you know. Bristol Hospital, children's or adults, they're both brilliant, can't fault them mostly. Sounds like you've had a very positive experience, Jack. That's really lovely to hear. I really have, yeah. It's actually quite funny. My sister's actually a children's nurse in Bristol Children's now. Do you think that was influenced by your experiences? I think she was. I think, obviously, when I had my first one, she sort of wanted to help out as well with my, my dialysis, so she wanted to get involved. And I think she's sort of grown up with it, with me having transplant and the process and it's just made her think I need to and um, help you know other transplantings because she's seen the she's seen how it's changed me as a person you know runs in the family the whole nursing thing and I'm actually a support, support worker now oh um, great support slash care worker so I've had a lot of help given to me in the past so I think it's time that I need to give my to give care back to others you know well fair play to you yeah that's really inspiring Jack do you think your experiences help you understand the problems of others and help you in, in that role? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I have been through a lot and it's a big change, children to adults. I'm very open about my transplant. I want it to be shared to everyone. You know, I want people to, you know, donate, you know, get on the transplant, let them, you know, register after this. And for the young adults coming into adults from the paediatrics, I am the type of person that is happy to help in the best way I can with my experiences. and telling you my experiences. I've had a lot, don't get me wrong, I've been a lot, but I want to help other people. So with the job I do, I'm helping vulnerable people now. Like I said, I've had care in the past, but I've had so much support for, for me. It's, it's time for me to give, give support and care back, you know, to help others. It's a really good attitude and you should give yourself a lot of credit because I think I would be a lot more selfish if, 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 um, if I'd had, you know, terrible experience. So, you know, Even if congratulations to you. <laughs> Even if they haven't got a medical condition like the anxiety and depression, that is a big one for a lot of young adults. I was going to ask you about that, Jack, because you mentioned that earlier. Um, what, what, um, how did you feel um, the support was around the mental and psychological well-being, uh, given what you'd gone through? Did you feel that you had enough of that during your your journey through the system? Um, or do you feel there are any areas that could have been improved, or you know, how did that work for you? I'm honest, my 
my mental health going through, I was very, was very low actually. I did struggle a lot. I really did. You're at that age where you sort of want to be like your friends. There's certain things you can't do, mm. limited to do. And it does not, it, it knocks my confidence and it still does today. I am who I am. You know, I can't change. I can't change about having a transplant and that. And I just accept, accept me for who I am, you know. Um, but before transplant, like I said, my anxiety, depression was really bad. But after transplant, that all sort of clears away. It puts a new picture on your life, you know. I was going to ask you, body image is a big issue for lots of young people. Um, you know, lots of people have to take steroids. They can make you put on weight and they can affect your skin. And, you know, having a fistula or, or a PDQ can leave you with scars. What do you talk about when you're with um, other young people with kidney problems? If I'm honest, regarding my kidney scars and my first dialysis, I see it as something to be proud of. It's, uh, you know, you need to be proud of what you overcome. I mean, a lot of my friends don't quite understand how big a kidney transplant is. They just think, ah, oh, it's just a, just, just put a new kidney inside. They don't know the ins and outs. And regarding the scars, I always see it as like a war wound. Like, you know, I've improved. Like, it just shows what I've been through and how, how much I've achieved, you know, really. Yeah, and that's the same thing like young adults as well. They should, they should be proud of what they've been through and not to feel left out because there's like I said with the transplant games you're meeting people that have been through so much more than what I have I look up to those people they're inspiring you know they are amazing people yeah you need to sort of think that people worse off than you if that makes sense medication how do you find you manage with that yeah the steroids is a big one obviously for me it was the weight gain was a big one for the steroids and it still still hits me now so for example like well it's not example it's true actually but before my transplant, we're talking four or five years ago, I used to weigh about seven stone. Because I wouldn't eat, my appetite was off because of my transplant failing. After my transplant, the steroids does have a big effect with your appetite. You end up eating ridiculous amounts of food that you never thought you would. And you do put on weight, but that's the sort of thing you've got to sort of balance between so starting to eat healthily and to go exercise at the gym or football, whatever your sport is. They're brilliant up here. They, they can advise you on what's best to dietitians who's brilliant like appetite wise and what to snack on what not to snack on from everything you've said i don't think you give yourself quite enough credit for your sort of inspirational attitude you know you're talking about it as if it was all fairly easy but i think you've done a lot of of really good work maybe between yourself and 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 your team but either way it sounds like it sounds like you've You've made a really good, really good job of turning turning what could be quite traumatic for some people into a positive. And I think seeing the scars as as war wounds and almost like proof of what you survived is yeah. is a great way to see it. But perhaps easier said than done. But it sounds like sounds like you've done it. I have, and I am proud of myself. And I'm overly proud of the guys here. They're amazing. And I was never a positive person going through my first transplant up to puberty. I was never positive. I was a bit like. Yeah, it's not going to work, it's going to be rubbish. And I think a lot of young adults are going to think that. They're going to think, I don't need this, it's, it's rubbish. But once you've had that transplant, your mind is just a whole different different world, like you're positive about life. And I'm, I never was. And since I had this transplant, I'm so positive about how I am. and try and make every, everyone else like, feel positive about themselves. You are who you are, you can't change that. And they should be proud of who they are. You know, My, my sort of um, saying in life is yeah, positive, Thinking equals successful life. 
that's a little sort of like saying I sort of came up with because it's true, it really is. And obviously, everyone probably suffered anxiety and depression recently because of COVID, really. But there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think my car club was the light at the end of the tunnel, really. It really was, yeah. So that's me. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Jack, have you found the last year really tough with COVID? How's it been overall? It's not been easy, I must admit. Um, so I was actually shielding for probably about 10 to 11 months, maybe up to a year, actually. The most I could actually do is probably just go for a walk around the village where I live. And it is difficult, don't get me wrong. But my mood, my sort of anxiety, depression didn't really play much of a part throughout lockdown, actually. You just got to stay positive, really, haven't you? Were you working behind the bar in the bowls club? I was just before so, so that must have been a big change because you must have had loads of social interaction in your job and then you suddenly went to being quite isolated. Um, so I actually stopped the bar work before I even, before even COVID start. I was working as a care worker before and um, obviously I didn't get to communicate with my clients I support because of lockdown. I wasn't allowed to work. Unfortunately, I wasn't furloughed because my company is public funded. So I was just sort of plodding along, really, trying to find things to do. Did, did you have any specific support from kind of the renal community with regards to the isolation? Did you have, are we on any sort of social media groups or presumably you've got some contacts with people who've been through similar things and, and people from the transplant games that you've met? and Facebook groups, so there's like a young adults page on Facebook. You found that a help, did you, overall, to have those contacts? Yeah, and I've actually built new friends through that as well. That's really nice. We do have young adult um, weekends away. Yeah. Sort of once a year, obviously, due to COVID, we haven't had it done. But again, that's another brilliant way of meeting new people. I'm always a bit nervous about going. I'm not a big fan of something, something that's new, you know. But when you're there... It's just brilliant. You get to hear so many different stories and meet some amazing people and obviously have, have a good laugh, you know. It's nice to meet people that are in a similar situation. So, yeah, of course. Yeah. Sometimes uh, I've been on the Young Adult Weekend before and I go along and help support it. The Young Adult Kidney um, Facebook group we're actually doing a virtual one this year, um, which I think is going to last for about nine days. So people mm-hmm. can to it and they can join different sessions, be it cooking, be it quizzes, be it film night whatever so although we can't physically go away there still will be some peers out there for them which would be really good so I'll be promoting that as well and hopefully next year Jack will actually go on the weekend away with us so Ali is that equivalent to our Fairthorn um trips for the pediatric group yes, Jack was saying that's where he went when he was yeah. under your care yes he went there um, and yeah this is held up in um Mount Cook and it's up in the Peak District all fully funded by Kidney Care UK. It's the yeah. most brilliant weekend away. And uh, it's really nice to see how these young people quite often are very shy, don't know anybody when they get there. By the time they leave, they really have made friendships that will last. And it's extremely well supported by the peer supporters who are all young people who have kind of outgrown attending it. So now they run it. And it is a fantastic resource for them. So anybody who comes over into adult services from the age of 18, I try to make them aware of the Young Adult Kidney Patient Facebook group. Not everybody likes to do social media or Facebook, but it's a fantastic resource and they are really, really very supported on it. I've only ever heard great things about Fairthorn. You get loads of patients who who were initially reluctant and then go and have an amazing time. I, I keep meaning to go myself, but haven't made it yet.
I did not want to go to Fairfield one bit. And um, as soon as I got there, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, that's what everyone says. It's so great to just put yourself out there, isn't it? I think that's the most important I thing. Even the activities, there's always something to do, you know, yeah. an opportunity. Yeah. I actually do a young adult sort of bowling evening, maybe, I don't know, was it? A couple of times a year. Yeah, a couple of times a year. And that's also a brilliant way, like, you get to see Alex himself trying to bowl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when he doesn't have broken arms. Right. But yeah, we get to see the nurse and the doctors not just in their normal clothes, you know, get to have a social, <laughs> social uh, bond with them. Yeah, that's lovely. Is it sort of like seeing your teachers outside of school? <laughs> it is. It's just like I've gone bowling with my doctor and I've had a beer with him. Yeah, and he's got trainers. <laughs> that sounds like a recipe for disaster, Jack. <laughs> is there anything we haven't covered that any of you think is important? There is, there is actually one thing I was going to comment on about the whole anxiety, depression side of things. There is yeah. a brilliant, and I, I can't fault her enough, um, brilliant psychologist up here called Susan Whitehead. And she got also got me through my transplant as well mm. in the way that I think will definitely help young adults. Um, she actually did, for me, uh, she did different pictures of like, when what you need when you come to have your transplant, they do like, she did like a little picture frame of before transplant, going down to anaesthetic, after transplant, and then the months or years ahead of it. And that really, really helped me get through mine. So I do recommend young adults coming to, coming to um, the adults, definitely recommend Susan and Whitehead for that if they are nervous about their transplant or they have any worries or fears about anything. She was brilliant absolutely brilliant control and for any procedures actually it's always really useful to have like a, a prepared care plan isn't it mm. so you know somebody coming in for any access surgery or anything you can always apply those, those kind of principles did did you have similar psychological support in the pediatric setting because we have a, a team psychologist that works really closely with us and all of our patients going through transplant and renal replacement therapy was that something you got involved with when you were at the children's hospital yeah, it was actually. So I, I don't know if she's still there now. I saw a lady called Tara, I think her name was. Yeah, yeah. She's not there anymore, but we've got... Yeah, support me going through young adults to adults as well with the psychology side of things. And she was brilliant. Like I said, I couldn't fault children's hospital one bit. Excellent. Really well. Yeah, I think I think obviously having embedded psychological support for young people is really important and um, probably doing mental health screening to pick up problems that people may not appreciate are there so that you can utilize the resources um, and, and try and keep people as well as, as they can be. Um, one of the things we, we haven't spoken about specifically is, is tablet taking and you know the term medication adherence and we know that about 43 percent of young adults will admit to, to poor adherence and that obviously that's a big worry when you've got um, a kidney transplant where taking the, the medications is essential to, to maintain the health of that transplant. Uh, we've heard from Jack, he's got a great amount of acceptance about his condition and that's, um, that's something we, we face clinically is people can go through periods where they don't appear to have huge acceptance of their condition and they don't look after themselves very well and sometimes you have to wait it out and try and support people as much as you can until they come out of it. Um, and there's 
probably a big fug of uremia going on and um, all, all the sort of psychosocial things going on. Um, but we can get into difficult positions sometimes where someone's on dialysis, they're not, not coming, they're getting a lot of fluid retention, their blood pressure is very high, they can't get their EPO injection, so they're very anemic. Then they're requiring transfusions and that's a very, that's a very tricky situation and time and support is, is what we do, but we don't have any sort of magic interventions to, to fix that other than trying to engage with people. And we've got phenomenal youth workers and things like that who can find different ways of trying to engage with people and um, get them to engage with, with the treatments that are being offered and, and try and get them to feel better. Um, but I don't know if you have any comments on that, Jack or Ali. Um, that's, that's, I think, the struggle that we face as, as clinicians. I think um, it's, it's really difficult for, for young people to want to carry on taking all these medications and quite often they will not always be honest to say when they haven't taken them and until sometimes it might be a bit too late. However, if, if we just do simple little tasks like suggesting, well, rather than risking forgetting something, you always have an extra supply of it in case you go and stay over at a friend's or you keep it in your car or you remember to tie it in with something you do twice a day, maybe like cleaning your teeth. Simple things... I think until they appreciate how they feel when they don't take it and they don't necessarily always accept why they have to carry on taking it if they've been taking it for a long time, it's just educating them and making them aware of the choices that they're making. Yeah, I agree that lots of people have um, talked a lot about practical tips like the toothpaste and putting the putting the tablets by the toothpaste. I mean, for anyone taking any medications, everyone knows how hard it is even to remember one tablet in the morning, let alone the number that you guys have to go through. So, um, your phone and timers and reminders and things are so important. And yeah, like if you, if you suddenly go on a night out that you're not expecting to actually know what to do then if you have forgotten to take your tablets, you, you know, we just need to make sure we are educating them. Obviously, young adults, young, obviously young adults these days are very into technology. So setting reminders and timers on your phone is always a great idea, actually. Yeah, like you said, apps. There's loads of apps out there you can use. You know, there's loads of different things you can do. Wow. Hard to know where to start to sort of unpack all that. I mean, first, thank you so much to Jack for taking the time to talk us through all that. Um, an absolute wealth of information and quite heartening to hear the amount of support that is around for young patients as they transition from paediatric through to adult care. Um, particularly great to hear about this Ready Steady Go programme. It sounds really comprehensive, really in-depth. Um, it seems like there's a big team of people going to a lot of effort just to make sure um, that the patients are well looked after. Um, and despite all that, it turns out that Jack's a support worker. Um, yeah, what an incredible, what an incredible fellow. Um, and then a nice shout out towards the end there to Susan Whitehead, the psychologist at Southmead. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll make an effort to, to share this podcast with you because it would be nice for you to hear that praise. Great, cool. Well, as ever, we are here to serve and definitely want feedback. So if you'd like to share your thoughts on this podcast or give us any idea for uh, future episodes please do get in touch using our twitter handle which is at keep it renal or get in touch on facebook by searching our facebook group which is called the keep it renal podcast and i'll see you on the next one thank you